This is Lock and Key. I'm Luke Quinton, your co-host. We're going to start somewhere slightly different today. I'll let Andy explain. This is The Time Machine, um, a little segment where we look at housing uh, movements around the world. So we're going to hop back into our time machine, and it's spring 2021. The pandemic is mostly still keeping us at home. Podcasts and audiobooks are surging. Eyebrows are bushy again. Sweatpants are in. And Taylor Swift just won a Grammy. So it was a wild time. (laughs) And we're in Lyon, Mexico. And this is a new housing project, Las Americas. It's officially complete, and it's a six-story concrete block of homes divided into 60 apartments. It is a low-rise, high-density, affordable housing development. But my favorite part of this project is that the building looks like a figure eight. Uh, and in the center of the figure eight, there are two courtyards. So every apartment is either on the ground floor or second floor surrounding a courtyard, a green space, which I think is pretty cool. Um, yeah, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but I really like the look of this project. It's sort of like modernist Soviet cement block, but also... You can see the potential, and it's really, there's so many windows, which I really like. Um, the green areas are gorgeous, and they the apartments remind you of freestanding homes. There's the sense of privacy, but also there's the third space. And at the base of the building, there are two units reserved com- for community use. What I like about it is they haven't decided, like these are unfinished rooms as of 2021, uh, and they were waiting for people to move in before they decide what they're going to be used for. They might be turned into kitchens, they might be turned into a shared eating space, they might be turned into a library or a daycare. They're sort of waiting to get feedback from the residents, which I think is awesome. Um, There's also another space in the building reserved for future commercial activity, and it seems like they're hoping for a bar or a restaurant. There's access to parking, but it's very bike-focused. It's in a really nice area, not nice as in like affluent, but nice as in mature trees, uh, access like it's easy for people to get to work. There are markets nearby, um, so I'm I'm kind of excited about this one. How tall are these guys? These are two stories. Uh, oh. I think it's two story. Yeah. Very yeah, pretty low, but sort of yeah. Yeah, uh, very low, um, very very light. The that's the problem with podcasts. You can't show people a picture, <laughs> but but I think that. Um, reading interviews with the architects um, the reason they went with all this gray and all this cement was they want people to add their own color Um, so the building is very uh, almost unfinished waiting for people to move in and see what they want which I which you know I think is something that we're learning uh, when we learn about housing projects it's like it's you can't plan it the whole way you have to leave something up for the residents and people want to make the house their own you know yeah i think so too and i and yeah and i think this uh housing project is pretty exciting yeah cool thanks andy no rum This is Lock and Key, brought to you by The Independent in Newfoundland and Labrador. And today we're heading to Labrador for the second of our two-part Labrador series with Justin Brake. Justin, can you tell us a little about this piece? Yeah, so 
One of the reasons why I was compelled to go to Labrador in the first place was because of everything going on in Happy Valley Goose Bay, the debate around the proposed new uh, shelter and, and facility there. Um, but of course, you know, as in most cases, in most places in the country, um, when you get on the ground, you 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 quickly learn that uh, stories are often a bit more um, nuanced than you initially thought, and you kind of have to roll with that. And so, where in the other episode that we did on Labrador, we really focused on sort of the Inu experience, why Inu were coming from Shehejit and Natwashish to Happy Valley Goose Bay. This time, we're looking more at the details of what's going on in Happy Valley Goose Bay, and the focus is more on the Inuit experience, um, especially uh, where we also, you know, we we found out that we that there were some shelters that Nunatsiivut government had built in a couple of the in a couple of their communities in Nain and Hopedale. So we end up going to Hopedale as well in this episode. Um, so you know, we're, we're trying to find out. Uh, exactly what's going on on the ground in Happy Valley Goose Bay, but also exploring what some of the proposed solutions are. So, Justin, is it kind of the situation that, like, for some reason, Happy Valley Goose Bay has become the kind of nexus of this problem and and people are coming from the coast and coming from up north into the community? Like, they're, they're, they're being pulled into Happy Valley Goose Bay for some reason? Yeah, well, Happy Valley Goose Bay is sort of the hub of Labrador, right? I mean, there is Lab City and Wabush uh, way on in the western part of the province along the Quebec border, but but Happy Valley Goose Bay is the business and the service hub of Labrador, and it's right in central. So it's where uh, people are flown if they need to go to the hospital. Um, people go there for job opportunities. There's a whole bunch of reasons why people end up in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Um, and it also happens to be the home of the lowest barrier shelter in the province and probably one of the most low barrier shelters in um, Eastern Canada, the hub. Okay, awesome. It's around like 10 p.m. in the evening, and there are half a dozen people or so gathered around a small set of stairs at the side entrance of the Labrador Inn. It sounds like they're arguing at first, but as I walk over, I realize they're just carrying on. Some folks are staying here for days or weeks, and others have been here for like two to three years since the lab inn first started being used as an overflow for the low barrier emergency shelter in town, the hub. It's not always loud here at the inn. It's often pretty quiet, actually. Unhoused folks here are put up in their own room. Um, They have a bed and a TV in there, but no refrigerator or microwave. Instead, they're given meals, three meals a day from the kitchen that once operated as a public restaurant that's attached to the hotel. There's kitchen staff there who cook the meals. And when you walk in the hotel's front entrance, you're greeted by security staff, usually two at the same time. They work in shifts, I think 12-hour shifts, And there's always someone there 24-7. Most of the time, the security workers and the people staying here get along great. I've seen them laughing and joking together and sharing a smoke every now and then. And those who've been here a while, they also tell me the place feels like home. Their cohabitants feel like family. Now I'm standing in the inn's lounge, a space that used to operate as a bar. I'm speaking with manager Bill Dormady about life here at the Labrador Inn. He's showing me three framed photos he just recently hung on the wall. You know, they were they were contributed to the environment here and, and to the, the family they created here with all the people who were staying here. Dormady's talking about the people in those three photos, 
Eugene Best, Gerald Fisher, and Frederica Benuin, all former residents of the Labrador Inn, all of whom died while living here. Uh, good people and just in a bad part in their lives. And, uh, you know, it's just unfortunate it ended the way it did. And no matter what age it is, it's too early. And uh, that's, uh, that's where we are. Frederica Benuin froze to death outside the inn in January 2022. And while her death made headlines, the other two recent deaths at the Lab Inn didn't get much attention. But those people's lives also tell us something about the housing crisis and the rise of homelessness. This is uh, Gerald Fisher. Um, he was a longtime resident here for over three years. Uh, he passed away uh, probably two months ago. Uh, you know, he had been sick and uh, we found him in his room. He had passed. Um, this other gentleman over here was Eugene Best. He, again, a long-term resident, and um, over the last six months or so, we started noticing him getting increasingly sicker all the time. Uh, he had inevitability. He had had cancer, and uh, he passed away just probably a few weeks ago. Eugene Best was 64, and he'd been at the lab in for a few years. Dormady says Best was a quiet man and largely kept to himself, but that he also thought of the inn as his home and the people here as his family. Mr. Bess, uh, prior to him passing, his last time he left the hospital, he, uh, he wanted to come back up to say uh, goodbye to his family. And, you know, he wanted to speak to all of us as well. So it's, you know, there, there is definitely a community. We have our own community here. So Happy Valley Goose Bay has 11% of the province's unhoused population, but only 8,000 people live here. And according to the CBC, that means the town has a higher homelessness rate per capita than Toronto, Vancouver, and St. John's. In March 2023, the province announced a $30 million investment for a new emergency shelter that will also offer transitional and supportive housing, with various services and supports for residents there. But not everyone in town is supportive of the idea. One of the first people I meet after checking into the Labrador Inn is Brandon Lee, a talkative 19-year-old with a gentle disposition. He tells me he spent much of his adolescence in foster care in Newfoundland, even though he's from Happy Valley Goose Bay. It's a similar story for many Indigenous children from Labrador who are taken into state care. They end up on the island, far away from their families, communities, and cultures. Brandon tells me he was physically and sexually abused while in foster care, and that he's still dealing with the effects of that abuse. He's also had problems with the law, and he's spent time in jail. He's on thin ice with the authorities, and there are conditions to his early release from jail. So being around the wrong people or not having stable housing, that could be detrimental to him. When he arrived in Goose Bay last spring, Brandon spent a few nights sleeping in the town's trails. Then he found help at the shelter. Yeah, I just called the emergency housing line and then they, uh, they didn't have enough room down at the... After several years in St. John's, he sees his return to Goose Bay and his time at the Labrador Inn as a second chance. Brandon is Inuk, but he wasn't raised in his culture. He has some long-term plans and he's hoping that being a Nunatsiwit beneficiary will help get him the support he needs to get back on his feet first by enrolling in adult basic education so he can finish his high school. And then I'll go get my ABE done, uh, probably get into pet grooming through, uh, through like college or something like that. Something like to do with animals, I would prefer. 
then um, I'm just going to use all that to, to kind of like set up my own business where I'd be able to like um, cut hair for dogs and like cats or whatever. So what drew you to animals? When did you, why, why are you interested in animals? Just because there's, there's like lovable, in, innocent creatures and they don't really hurt nobody unless they feel like they're threatened. And it just makes me feel like a really good person to be able to help in that line of work. Brandon seems hopeful about the future. Shortly after our interview, he landed a job with a local plumbing company. On the front door to the inn, there's a piece of paper taped to the glass at eye level. And on that paper, there's a number that guests can call for support. It connects them to an Anunaziovit social worker. When there's an emergency, Hotel workers often have to rely on the RCMP. While the lab inn is doubling as a homeless shelter, Dormady and his staff are not trained or equipped to provide the mental health and other supports that many here need. Staff have encountered people in crisis and people requiring urgent medical care. It's just one of those things that uh, we don't know from one day to the next and, uh, and we just try to do the best we can on a day-to-day basis. The Labrador Inn acts as an overflow for Happy Valley Goose Bay's only low-barrier shelter, the Hub. Low-barrier means the Hub will take anybody, even those who are intoxicated or under the influence, as long as they're not being aggressive or violent. They have staff trained to deal with that. But those who the Hub staff feel don't need the same level of support or monitoring, they're usually sent to the Lab Inn. To get a better sense of how this whole thing works, I decide to visit the Hub. It's run by the Nunatsiavut government, which represents Inuit from Labrador's north coast. Through Happy Valley Goose Bay's history, a sizable number of Inuit families have moved here seeking employment, healthcare, education, and sometimes just to get away from their communities. Most Nunatsiavut beneficiaries living outside of the land claims region live in the Goose Bay area. Crystal Saunders is Nunatsiavut's housing support services manager. She spends a lot of time at the Hub. Um, so they love watching their shows and chilling out in here. It's somewhere to hang out. They can hang out here 24-7. There's no limits on, uh, you know, at, at, a, at the beginning of the shelter, during the day, we'd encourage them to leave from 8 to 8. Um, but now they don't have to do that anymore since COVID. we got day staff. So people like to hang out in here to avoid some of the... Uh, stressors, I guess, that happen inside the shelter. During my tour, Saunders introduces me to an Inuk woman. I'm uh, Verona Simiuk. Uh, I'm from Nain, Labrador. Verona is a small, unimposing woman and a mother. She speaks softly, but her voice is worn. She's been in trouble with the law, too. She talks openly about her trauma and her on and off battles with addiction and her desire to one day continue working as a certified hairstylist. But first, she has to get off the streets. Then, uh, after a while, I, uh, someone rooted me here to the housing hub, homeless shelter. <clears throat> that was about two years ago. The line between having safe and secure housing and ending up in the streets is thin. That's what Verona wants people to know. It could be you. In a snap of a finger, it could be you. 
A last hope for many living in the streets of Happy Valley Goose Bay, the hub is overwhelmed by the growing demand for emergency shelter spaces and supports. And according to Crystal Saunders, people like Verona Samiak don't actually need to be here. Verona uses drugs, but because she can't do it in her own home like so many others in this country, things are different for her. Because of her addiction she's using, it becomes criminalized because she's using outside because she's homeless. So if she had affordable housing and she was using in her own living room, which many Canadians are, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. interaction with RCMP would stop. She could go get a job. As in so many cases, there's a ripple effect. If there was adequate, affordable housing in Happy Valley Goose Bay, Verona might be living on her own, freeing up a space at the hub, which might mean one less person at the Labrador Inn. Everyone involved knows about this ripple effect. The shelter, harm reduction and other support workers, the unhoused and unsheltered folks themselves, and even the politicians. The Happy Valley Goose Bay Town Council finally got the province's attention. In the province's 2023 budget speech last March, Finance Minister Siobhan Cody announced some relief. Working with our Indigenous and community partners in supporting individuals experiencing homelessness in Happy Valley Goose Bay area, Over $30 million is allocated for an integrated health, housing, and supportive services hub. A new $30 million facility in Happy Valley Goose Bay. But what seemed like a good news story and a relief for those living on the streets and those helping them hasn't been received that way by many in the town. Every time I've visited Happy Valley Goose Bay, I felt um, so welcome. Can you kind of describe the city for people who haven't been? Yeah, so Happy Valley Goose Bay is a really interesting community, and I don't think I've ever been um, to another community like it. It was developed around, you know, in recent history, developed around the uh, the Canadian Air Force Base, and... um, you know, that's in what's now Goose Bay. And then nearby, just down the hill and closer to the banks of the Churchill River, or Mistashipu as the Innu call it, uh, is Happy Valley. So we have basically two separate communities that are that form one municipality and one community now. And it, they are connected by a long road called Hamilton River Road. And the trail system that we often hear people talking about, the wooded area of the community that is full of trails where people are sleeping, is kind of in between those two parts of the of the municipality. And it's a really interesting community because it's very sort of culturally diverse, right? There's a lot of Inuit and Innu and settlers um, there, and, and at least half the population is Indigenous. This almost like a metaphor of having the trail run between both communities and having it be such a flashpoint. Yeah. You know. So they got this agreement for $30 million for a new facility. Like, what was the reaction to that? Yeah. Well, at first it seemed like a good news story and like a relief for those living in the streets. Um, not an immediate relief, but an eventual relief. But many in the town haven't received it with the same open arms. Technical question, like when you say people, because the second time I think we refer to people living in the streets, 
what kind of streets are we talking about? Are they sort of suburban? Are they? So there's a, there's a place on Hamilton River Road um, in the Happy Valley section, uh, which is where the hub is. And it's not far from the hub. And there are a few stores there. And there's some benches as well. And there's also a place, uh, like there's a, pub, uh, there's a plug-in, like an outlet, a place where people can charge their phones. And that was a place where people would regularly congregate, unhoused people. And then like last year or the year before, the town like removed benches from there so that people wouldn't congregate there anymore. That's been their whole response. Uh, They've really, I mean, the mayor tells me in the interview that's coming up um, that they are putting public safety as their number one priority. Uh, And so that's the approach that we've seen. They've cut down trees in the trail systems where people were lighting fires to stay warm at night. They cut down trees there because they were afraid that it would, a fire would get out of hand and to deter people from having fires in in the woods there. So it's been a very reactive response from the community. But when you drive through the community, especially in the Happy Valley area where the hub is, that's where you're more likely to see people um, walking around. Okay, right on. When you enter the town, there's a sign that says, Welcome to Happy Valley Goose Bay, the heart of Labrador. It's a phrase that to me conveys more than just the town's status as a business and service hub. It also tells me that this is a friendly community. That's why I'm confused by a pair of large yellow signs put up on the side of Hamilton River Road, the town's main thoroughfare that connects Happy Valley to Goose Bay. The signs read, Site of Mega Shelter, 40,000 square feet. Honk if you don't want it here. The person who put up those signs? Darren Buckle, owner of DBH Limited, a company that specializes in alarm systems. If it's built, the proposed integrated health, housing, and supportive services hub would stand just down the road from Buckle's business. I don't want people breaking into my vehicles. I don't want them sleeping in my vehicles. I don't want them having sex in my vehicles, right? This is the kind of stuff that we're seeing. There are stories in the community about unhoused folks having sex in public places, disrupting residents and businesses. And I even heard one account of an unhoused person who allegedly exposed themselves to a, a child. It's just not clear how frequently these things are happening or if like one or two incidents have kind of snowballed into this public narrative that paints, you know, unhoused people in a, a pretty unfavorable light. You know, I got a property here. I keep it, you know, neat and clean and tidy. I mean, you try to uh, to do nice things, and uh, and then you see around town what happens with uh, other businesses, and I don't, I don't mind it. Justin, I'm I'm almost surprised that he agreed to talk to you. Um, why do you think he did that? Well, he's not alone, and I think he knows he's not alone. I mean, he put up the signs, and all the the time that I spent standing with him, which was 20, 30 minutes, right near the signs, and all of the times, dozens of times that I drove by there in my you know week or so in Goose Bay, I didn't hear one person honk. So I think while there is like division over the idea of the facility, over what the facility might look like, most people aren't being as vocal as Darren Buckle. Um, but I think that he also knows that, you know, if if people are against it, somebody has to speak up and he's not really shy about about that. So these stories about people having sex in public places, they're sort of taking on like an urban myth sort of quality. 
Well, maybe, yeah. That's It's not clear. That's the thing, right? So Darren Buckle said he doesn't want people breaking into his vehicles and having sex and or sleeping in them. And there are stories around the community of people being disruptive, of uh, indecent exposure. And so, you know, I don't think that these things are happening every day. Like they're not commonly happening, but it does kind of seem like, you know, when one bad thing happens, it becomes part of the narrative of this is what these people are like. So there's definitely like a major kind of othering going on. And it seems like there's this like maybe social phenomenon of people like demonizing unhoused people, which of course is not the appropriate response. And Buckle's not alone. Others in Happy Valley Goose Bay have concerns about the proposed facility too, including the town's mayor, George Andrews. How's it going, buddy? Good, how are you doing? Andrews was elected as mayor in September 2021. A few months after the previous mayor, Wally Anderson, and his council recorded a controversial Facebook video message demanding action from the province on the town's crisis. He's glad the province is stepping up, but his council still has questions about the plans. We immediately uh, put out a request for a meeting with Newfoundland Arbiter Housing. There's been preliminary discussions. There's been uh, a really, I guess, short attempt at uh, an open house, for lack of a better word. But there hasn't been a, a detailed plan, not only footprint, but what services are going to be included in the building. Andrew's main concern is that residents don't understand what the new shelter is supposed to be. Both he and Buckle said they'd like to see things like a detox or rehabilitation uh, center built into it. Like there's a huge number of concerns about is there any addictions treatment uh, opportunity? Um, is the, are the facilities that they're going to put in the building, uh, for instance, like the door, uh, doorways program with mental health and addictions, and the staffing around all of those you know, extra programs that they're talking about, or potentially, is that going to draw from our existing services here at the hospital? Let's backtrack a little bit here. Um, For the past decade, the construction of the Muskrat Falls Hydro Project has had a profound impact on communities in Labrador, but in particular Happy Valley Goose Bay because it sits just down the river from the dam. And it's here that the council has fought tooth and nail with the province to mitigate the project's impacts. And one of those impacts has been the dramatic rise in real estate costs and the cost of living, and now the lack of affordable housing. So that's all on top of the conditions that gave rise to the current housing crisis in Canada that we're seeing everywhere. So in addition to the fact that half or more of Happy Valley Goose Bay's residents are Indigenous, many of them are living with the impacts of intergenerational trauma from things like the forced relocation of Inuit from Hebron and also the residential schools. Um, Justin, can you kind of describe to us exactly the the fallout of Muskrat Falls? How how is that being measured? Have housing prices increased because people are moving to build Muskrat Falls? Is is that part of what happened there? Well, when Muskrat Falls was under construction, so this is like, you know, the 2013, 14, 15, 16, that period of time, those like few years, 
housing, like real estate skyrocketed in the community then. I know I know one young man from Happy Valley Goose Bay who's in Nook, who was working on the project, bought a really expensive home because it was his only option if he wanted to live in his home community. And then the real estate value uh, dropped, but he was he was lucky that he he sold before it did. But a lot of other people uh, didn't. So um, you know, all of those impacts were predicted in the lead up to the project, and promises were made that these kinds of things, as well as all the social um, issues that came with having you know hundreds or thousands of new workers in the area, and the increase in drugs that people saw in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Um, all of these things were kind of known, but they were compounded by what we're seeing now with the housing crisis, the cost of living and affordability crisis. Uh, so, you know, the six bed mental health unit that was promised and was built in at the hospital in Happy Valley Goose Bay, like a six bed mental health unit is hardly enough to deal with the fallout or the consequences of the current crisis compounded by the circumstances that were created by Muskrat Falls. In 2019, the province announced it was going to build a six-bed mental health unit attached to the hospital in Goose Bay, something that's desperately needed, but is just a small part of a broader solution to the town's crisis of homelessness. That June, the former mayor, Wally Anderson, called on the province to do more. He said it had gone on far too long. Fast forward to May 2021, and the province established an action team to figure out a path forward. And that team included local Indigenous groups, the Labrador Friendship Centre, the Provincial Health Authority, the RCMP, the Housing and Homelessness Coalition, uh, the provincial and the federal governments, and the Salvation Army, which, uh, through its emergency disaster relief vehicle, provides food and, and other things to those on the streets. And those meetings led to an announcement on the proposed facility, which Labrador MHA and the province's Labrador Affairs Minister, Lisa Dempster, she's referred to it as a mini-gathering place. The Gathering Place is a community health centre in St. John's that serves as an emergency shelter, uh, a soup kitchen, and a place for unhoused folks to access medical and dental care, um, showers, laundry facilities, and other supports and services. And that's what some in Happy Valley Goose Bay feel their town needs to replace the only low barrier shelter there, which is the hub, which is always at capacity. But those action team meetings, they haven't exactly gone well, at least not from the town's perspective. What's happening around that table isn't what's around town. Like that, that what's happening is not being put out there. So I asked, uh, you know, a lot of folks, uh, do you know what the proposed new facility is what's going to be, et cetera. And the second question I asked him is, do you know that, what the action team is? And most response was, well, what's the action team? So the province has created a website. Um, their effort, I think, to try to be transparent and, and detailed as possible about what the new place is going to uh, include. They're planning to provide emergency shelter, transitional and supportive housing, this is how they describe it on their website, living in a safe, supportive environment where individuals experiencing homelessness are supported. It'll include 30 overnight emergency shelter beds, 20 transitional beds, 20 self-contained supportive housing units, mental health and addiction supports, and other health services, um, navigational supports to access services, and culturally appropriate and community-based wraparound support services. 
Andrew says that's more information than the province originally offered when it announced the funding, but it's still not enough. And he wants these sorts of issues developed with the community's involvement. And here's the sticking point. The province owns the land where the facility would be built, but town council would still have to approve permits. And the mayor says that's something he and council will only do with the support of residents. At the end of the day, I can be as forward-thinking a community leader as I want to be. But, you know, uh, it's going to be the direction from the community uh, that's going to dictate, you know, which way, you know, the the voting will go, I assume. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to have no information and rely on just that public consultative process to bring all the information to the community is probably not, you know, a... uh, a wise move, in my opinion. Um, I think that that information should be in the community. In May 2023, the Newfoundland and Labrador Housing Corporation commissioned a phone survey. And that survey found that 42% of respondents support an integrated health, housing, and supportive services facility in Happy Valley Goose Bay. And it also found that 38% of respondents strongly support it. To make better sense of all this, I decided to head over to Nanatsivut government office in Goose Bay, and I tracked down their Deputy Minister of Health and Social Development. Michelle Kinney's been working on the front lines of homelessness for years. She's not in Nook, but her experience working with Nunatsivut has put her in charge of the hub. Shortly after my visit with her, the province announced that Nunatsivut will run the new facility. She says there's a lot of misinformation going around town and that many are basing their opinions about the facility on stigma associated with mental health, addictions, and homelessness. But Kinney does agree with the mayor on at least one thing, the lack of information. We've had several community kind of things where people could ask questions and whatever. We've had opportunity to sit down with some groups to talk about it, but I think overall, people don't understand. So you see the big signs around the mega shelter, I mean, in reality, the shelter will just meet the current needs. Like we, on a regular basis, have 13 clients at the shelter. We have 20 clients at the Labrador Inn. Really, we're not creating any more shelter beds than we currently have. It's a few less. Kinney says there are many others like Verona Semiak, who've been forced to use the shelter or the Labrador Inn because they couldn't get safe, affordable housing. If that issue was addressed... She says there'd be far less demand on their services and people's needs could be met at the new facility. So there are a lot of individuals within our current system who could live independently given someone, if someone gave them the opportunity for affordable housing, basically, is as simple as it gets. She says the town lacks a continuum of services where people in the emergency shelter, when they're ready, can transition to a supportive living program. That program, as it currently exists, has about 31 people enrolled, and it's full of people who are ready to live on their own. But there's no affordable housing, so they can't. And there's a backlog. So we have a young woman who's been in the program for many years who is working in Boise's Bay. She does her two-week turnaround, comes back to a supportive living unit. Waste of a bed in a unit, really. I mean, sarcastically, it's not a waste because she needs a bed, but she could have her own apartment. I don't think people get that concept. So we do, we will have 30 shelter beds, but then there's an opportunity for people to grow beyond that. So for me, that is the bonus of this building. It's not a mega shelter, really. 
It's a continuum of services. Kinney tells me of an Inuk woman who was unhoused and needed support. And after struggling to figure out where to go for help, she finally got it through the hub. Now she's working for Nunatsivut government as a translator, and her office is just down the hall. My name is Selma Swara. I was born in North River, raised in Nain by my grandparents. And, and I moved here to Goose Bay in 1989 due to abuse, a lot of abuse back home. Swarak lost her employment insurance right before the pandemic hit. And then I became homeless. I was just going from place to place, wherever it was safe. Um, and I find that uh, when you're homeless, you're not safe anywhere. You don't really have that home. Um, so you're just bouncing around from here to there. She had major health complications and had to be flown to the Health Sciences Center in St. John's. And that's when she accepted that she'd have to use her last resort. My body was not well. I wasn't thinking straight. Um, I didn't know where to go, what to do. Um, I was scared. Um, but I knew that there was a homeless shelter. I avoided that as much as long as I could. Um, <clears throat> trying to find a job, but the jobs weren't like available like they would be if there was no call. I got really uh, desperate because where I was not well, didn't have no safe place to go to, not eating right, and not taking my medication proper and all that stuff. So I went then to the homeless shelter and went to see Michelle, Kenny. And she was nice enough to get me a room at Labin. But as Selma learned, having temporary shelter isn't the same as having a place to call home. And I stayed there for I don't know how many months. But as I was staying there, I found it really hard where um, it was good that I had finally had a place that I could call my own, like a little room that I can call my own. I can do whatever I want. I can rest when I want. I can eat, um, which was good. But it was also hard because you're around a lot of homeless people too. And the addictions are very strong, like um, your body's in there addiction and I can understand why you don't feel safe nowhere you're scared all the time you're lost all the time but I was always determined to get back on my feet I noticed something when meeting people who have used or are using the shelters and supports in Happy Valley Goose Bay. Most of them aren't from here. Many are from Inuit communities on the North Coast, which are inaccessible by road, they're dealing with their own housing crises, and they're expensive to live in or even return to. So don't those communities have shelters and other supports? Kinney tells me there are two new homeless shelters in the Nunatsiavut communities of Nain and Hopedale. For a previous episode, I flew to Natwashish to speak with Inu in the First Nations community. But from there, I flew to Hopedale to see what Inuit are dealing with when it comes to housing and homelessness. Hopedale's a beautiful community. It's built on the rocky shores of the northern Labrador coast. In the middle of the community is the old Hopedale Mission National Historic Site, a series of white wooden buildings constructed by the Moravian Church in the 19th century. Around 600 people live here, 
and you can walk around town in a matter of minutes. But I haven't been here before, so Sheldon Lane picks me up on his ATV. Lane is Nunatsiavut's housing program manager. He splits his time between Nain and Hopedale, and he oversees the operations of the new shelter on the edge of the community here. He takes me there to check it out and to meet some of the residents. Well, you got people sleeping in trucks or cars and just looking for places to go for the night, so a lot of people affected. Now with the shelter opening up, this you can get there's a place from the go. The first person I meet here is Toby Obed, a 51-year-old residential school survivor and the face of the plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit that resulted in an official apology and settlement from Canada for some of the residential school survivors in Labrador. I remember covering Justin Trudeau's apology to survivors in 2017 and the moment when Toby Obed walked onto the stage, his arms in the air, and hugged the Prime Minister. There have been times where... Myself, uh, As with Inuit and other Indigenous peoples right across the country, residential schools had a devastating impact on the Inuit of Nunatsiavut. The violence and trauma Inuit were subjected to destroyed a lot of lives, and it created a ripple effect via intergenerational trauma. Many families and all communities still struggle. Things like mental health issues, addiction suicide, and those issues we know are closely tied to homelessness. So while Inuit residential school survivors in Labrador finally got their apology and settlement from the federal government, it's not like everything suddenly got better for them. Certainly not for Toby Obed. In January, before I came here, I was was homeless. And I was out, it was during the spring, and I would spend the night maybe with an aunt or an uncle, stay with them for a night, maybe a couple of nights with a fam with a, a friend, a couple of nights with a few of my my cousins or you know, if they had the space. But the majority of the time I spent outside. This is springtime. And it warmed up, yes. But then we get those days where we get the storms or we just get that cold in the air. And that's how, that's where, you know, I had no choice but to be outside. And have looking and trying to find a place that was warm, that had no wind, like very little wind or little snow drifts that were around where I was trying to sleep, trying to find somewhere comfortable to sleep trying to find somewhere that was that would keep me out of the wind out of the cold is like almost next to impossible and then once people find out that you are homeless and they see it they talk you know people know and understand okay look they're homeless they got nowhere to go I wish we could help them. I wish we had the space to take that person in. I wish we could take in Toby. Look, he's right beautiful looking. I wish we had the room, boy. Tell him come in if it has some tea. Tell him have some coffee. Tell him come in and he must be hungry. Fuck that was ugly. Going into someone's house, knowing myself that I'm homeless, 
And then when others know it, it it made me feel even worse because now they're taking pity. Not because they want to or they have to, because it's it's who we are as Inuit. We try to help out when we can, if we can, and do what we can. That's Obed's experience being homeless in his own community. And then the emergency shelter opened up last January. This is a godsend. Right now, this emergency shelter is a godsend for a lot of people. When they first opened, there was, and the word got out, we had like 10 people. We were beyond capacity. The housing crisis in Inuit communities like Hopedale amounts to an infringement on the human rights of Inuit. And that's coming straight from Canada's federal housing advocate, Marie-José Ull. Ull serves as the country's independent, nonpartisan watchdog on housing. Her position was created after the federal government passed the National Housing Strategy Act. And part of her job is she's supposed to hold the government to account on its commitments in the new act, which recognizes housing as a human right. Ul visited Nain and Hopedale and Happy Valley Goose Bay in October 2022. This is an ongoing human rights failure that needs urgent attention. And this report, it's not the first of its kind, but it must, it must be the last. This must be a wake-up call to governments at all levels. And every person in Canada has the human right to adequate housing. And through the National Housing Strategy Act, the same legislation that gives me my mandate, the human right to adequate housing has been enshrined in Canadian law. And this recognition of housing as a human right means that there is no excuse for inaction. All governments in Canada, from the federal level down, have an obligation to uphold the right to housing for everyone in Canada. Without discrimination, but especially, especially for those at greatest risk of their rights violations. Just as the proposed facility in Goose Bay won't solve the housing and homelessness crisis, neither will emergency shelters in small Inuit communities. But as Toby Obed told me, having a roof over his head, a safe place to sleep, and food, it's a godsend. And it's a first step on what most unhoused folks hope will be a path to stability. What would that look like in Nunatsiavut? Well, in 2018, the Nunatsiavut government did a housing needs assessment and found that 78% of homes in the Inuit communities in Labrador need major repairs. Unfortunately, not much has changed since then. Here's Nunatsiavut government president Johannes Lamp at a November 2023 press conference in Ottawa. Housing conditions that are so awful, they need to be seen to be believed. These are all symptoms of a human rights crisis that has gone on for far too long. We need to see real change and accountability from the government of Canada, as well as meaningful support and action from the government of Newfoundland and Labrador to ensure our Labrador Inuit Inunachewut can enjoy their right to adequate housing. Lamp says the federal government should give Nunatsiavut control of housing programs and services, and that the federal and provincial governments together should move away from program-based funding. The shortcomings and inefficiencies of the current funding dynamic are known and reflect the urgent need 
for a total reshaping that is consistent with our rights to self-determination and self-government, as affirmed in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. On my way home to Newfoundland from Labrador, I think about everything I've heard and learned. Every person's story is different, but there are common threads throughout them. At some point in their lives, something bad happened. And when that bad thing happened, they didn't have adequate supports, whether it was at home, in their community, or wherever they were. Those events triggered chain reactions for most of the folks I spoke with. And any time they managed to halt their descent to rock bottom, something else happened. Maybe another trauma, or they weren't able to figure out how to get housing or supports. And the other thing that stands out, and this may be the most crucial part of all, everything that's happening today, from the housing conditions in Indigenous communities, to the ways people in Happy Valley Goose Bay are responding to the influx of homeless folks in their community, everything is underpinned by two things. The ways we think about people who are experiencing homelessness, and then the ways those thoughts lead, whether we realize it or not, or whether it's intentional or not, to discrimination and marginalization. And that's in everything from public discourse to government policies to political will or lack of political will. But I do have to admit something here. My own perception changed after spending time in Labrador. Some of the people I met were ex-convicts. Many of them were addicts. And I don't use those terms a lot, but I'm trying to describe the difference between the way I was thinking about people and the situation beforehand and now. And what I learned is, you know, we tend to focus on these things like they're sort of inherent characteristics of people or that people are incapable of changing. Um, Or we think of them as not really having autonomy, like they've somehow forfeited that right to make decisions for themselves. But, you know, as with most of us, I think much of what shapes us is influenced by how others see us and treat us. It's really hard to live in this world and live and think and be in a way without all that constant input we're constantly, you know, getting from other people. And when you're unhoused or experiencing homelessness, there's this constant barrage of othering that happens and discrimination and looking down on you. So, you know, that's why when the town of Happy Valley Goose Bay started cutting down trees in the trail system to deter people from having campfires to stay warm, uh, then they removed public benches where people were gathering, that further entrenched the idea for many of them that there are two classes of residents, those who deserve warmth and a place to sit or charge their phones, and those who don't. So in Labrador, I didn't spend time with ex-cons and addicts and homeless people, I spent time with human beings whose traumas contributed to their interactions with the criminal justice system and whose life circumstances led them to addiction and who are experiencing homelessness, hopefully for not much longer. But if that's going to happen, it's not just going to happen with government policy alone. The rest of us have a steep learning curve because the way we see and treat unhoused people and those living with addiction or other mental health illnesses or conditions That's impacting our governments and our society's response to the crisis. 
Here's Marie-José Houle again, Canada's federal housing advocate. And the human rights violations really are down to dignity. And, you know, when we talk about human rights, it is about, without discrimination, be able to live the life that you've dreamed, of communities being able to build the communities that they dream, of tapping into the human potential. Because right now, in a country that is lacking labor, that is, you know, there is a huge cost to that. And there is a huge cost to the encampments that we're seeing across this country. And the inability or the inaction of government to directly address uh, the human rights violations in terms of housing as a human right has a cost for everyone, but most directly in the cost of places where we can't see. If unhoused folks who end up at the hub or at the Labrador Inn or even in a shelter in one of the small, you know, Inuit communities, if they're able to feel a glimmer of hope while they're there, the least the rest of us can do is make sure that our governments invest enough into ensuring the infrastructure, the supports, and the resources are there for them because we see that that works when people have the supports, the resources, and the physical space, not just a roof over their heads. That's when they're able to make the decision, the hard decision, um, or at least to begin trying to get back on their feet to deal with the addiction issues, to get help for mental health issues. Because you know, when people feel seen and valued, that can change their whole world. It certainly did for Selma Swarok. But I had a real hard time trying to get back on my feet. And when I became homeless, I, I found that this lady here, um, she was very supportive, very nice. Like, And she told me that one time that uh, they found an apartment for me. And then it made me feel good because when you're homeless, after a while you start feeling like you don't belong anywhere, nobody wants you. You're homeless, you're dirty, you're ugly, you're, you're, you're a nobody kind of thing. But she came to me and told me that they found a place for me and then it felt good knowing that they believed in me. And for longest time, I, it took me a long time to be able to sit down in my own apartment and say, this is mine. I can relax now, I can stay still now, I can do whatever I want now. I'm at the point now where I'm finally getting back on my feet and be able to relax in my own apartment, be able to do what I want to do, and be able to say that I have the right to do whatever I want whenever I want. And I got my own place now, and and it feels good. Uh, and with the addictions, like I don't need that in my life now. I'm I'm in control now. Justin, thank you so much for doing all this work, traveling to Labrador and getting these stories. It's really, really informative. Yeah, thanks, Justin. My pleasure.
our limited series podcast, Lock and Key, is produced by Olivia Ball, edited by Luke Quinton, and I'm your co-host, Andy Bowman. Luke Quinton is the executive producer. That's me. Music is by Jake Nichol. Our art is by Shanley Pomeroy. A big thank you to Tom Baird and Sarah Swain, and a big thank you to Justin Brake, editor of The Independent. For more in-depth stories about the housing crisis, you can go to theindependent.ca. And thank you to everyone who shared their stories with us over this past year. The Lock and Key podcast received funding from the Community Housing Transformation Center, the Center. However, the views expressed are the personal views of the author, and the center accepts no responsibility for them.